Um, YouTube, hopefully you can hear me now, but then uh, there was no sound for everybody else. Um, you may not be able to get the Zoom. I'll see if I can work on that while I'm also talking. But what we're doing is <clears throat> pirating my conversation with, uh, now I just lost it here. Oh, Marysville, Washington. Uh, Kurt, tell me your, your congregation's name again. Messiah Lutheran Church in Marysville, Washington, who uh, have asked me to talk a little bit about uh, my book, Talk Them Into It, with them and their their men's group that's studying that, and then also uh, to allow me to broadcast that to you. Um, so hopefully, uh, those of you who are out there are at least getting my sound right now, and I think I know why the other sound was gone, and I think I can fix that if we go back and forth. But in any case, let's just start with a little bit of an introduction. Um, and so for the video, I'm going to move over here like this. Um, so... I'm not even sure I'm qualified to write this book, and that's why I'm not sure how to talk about it with you other than to say the most important thing to do is find out what you found valuable in this book and see if I can have that reinforce it in me so I go and do it. Uh, I, I wrote this book because I don't do enough of this. I've always wanted to. I remember before I became a Lutheran pastor being honestly covetous, I would say, uh, of a man named, uh, now I'm going to lose it, Ray Oh, I forget it now. He's a, he's a West Coast street preacher. Ray Comfort, you got it there. <clears throat> I'll leave it to the pastor to know, right? Uh, Ray Comfort, Living Water Ministries. Uh, he found himself some Luther Law gospel, fell in love with it, and then did some Baptist stuff with it. But he was very, very compelling just in his ardor and zeal to talk to anyone at any time about Christianity. <clears throat> and I always wanted that, but never had it. I've always been an introvert, which we can talk about that. That's a whole other kind of tangent of topics. Um but then uh, this last year, I've been, again, thinking about what it looks like, what it feels like, what it would be to be the kind of person that does what Ray Comfort did. Not thinking about Ray Comfort so much, but having been spurred onto it by a study we did of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles and Paul for Sharper Iron on KFU Radio way back about a year and a half ago now, maybe almost two years ago, and being so surprised and stunned by St. Paul's audacity, his, his willingness <clears throat> to sacrifice every moment that he had in order to confess Christ. And uh, one might say, well, you know, he was he was unmarried, he didn't have children, he has this whole section about how people are, uh, you know, you can be distracted by the world if you are, are um, uncelibate and all this kind of thing. Uh, and so he was special, as one might say, uh, he could do that and we can't. But then this year, I've been also focusing in on the language of, say, Philippians 3, where he tells us that he, Paul, his approach to life, the way he viewed life, is an example of what it looks like to follow Christ. That one simply just sees every moment as a gift from God that is to be used to convey the truth about who God is. And taking that back into Paul and looking at those moments where he does these things that to me are just audacious, where he is about to be destroyed by a crowd who's like the definition of an anti-police, a defund the police crowd. This is a, a rioting, zealotist Jewish crowd in Roman-possessed Jerusalem, and they're going to rip him limb from limb, and the cops come in to help him, right? It's the opposite of what we see going on in some of the streets in America. The cops are there protecting this one guy, and he says, stop, put me down, let me address them, which 
I can't believe the, the the Roman soldier in charge let him do it. I mean, it shows you the power Rome had. Rome wasn't going to let you, th- you know, shoot lasers in somebody's eye and just roll over. They were going to stab you back. It was a very different kind of military reality back then. And we we do well to remember how how peaceful we have it these days. Um, uh, how how much Christianity's impact on human hearts continues to impact Western civilization. And we got to wonder what happens when that's gone in a hundred years or well, fifteen or now. Um, even so, Paul being willing to look upon the crowd who is going to rip him limb for limb, and rather than be glad that the, that the cops are getting him out of the way, he just asks the cops to make a wall so he can keep preaching. And I ask, what spirit of God is this? You know, and Lord may have a double portion, for pity's sakes. And, and as, I, as, I, as I wonder more and more about that and why it's so hard to speak in 21st century America, why it is, uh, you're always looking over your shoulder. You're always kind of having to soft pedal what you believe is true. Even when these things weren't radical a little while ago, things like the resurrection at certain points. Um, to me then, uh, I was searching for uh, a simple set of tools to improve my own ability to just say he has risen me more often. And also uh, to recognize that a lot of times the conversations that I entered into as a young man, are driven by ideas I had ahead of time of what I thought other people should know. I think it's very common to young men to have that, that, that view of themselves and, and of others. Um, but that the real way to uh, have a conversation with someone or to convert them is not merely to tell them what to think and they go, aha, they, you are so smart, I listen to you. But that in an interchange of back and forth, there's a common ground that's built upon which uh, another foundation might then be laid. And this is not to say there's a foundation to lay besides Christ, but it's that as Christ, as our eternal foundation exudes from us out into the world, he lays his foundation down in the dregs of where the idols are falling apart. And, and if you don't take the time to find out where that is in another human being's life, you can't assume you know how to apply law or gospel to them just because you can quote Walther or just because you can quote Peeper or just because you can quote Paul, frankly. Uh, you have to be able to have those conversations. So what I did, wanting this to be something that I could do, both engage humans on a, on a real one-to-one, um, build a better friendship conversation, skill set ability, um, art of manliness style, or if you're familiar with, um, I'm going to lose his name, there's a guy out in California uh, who does these like fly-in clinics for like $15,000. You fly in for a week, he teaches you how to like meet people, talk to them and network and, and look nice and all that. Well, well, Christians could use a little of that, I suppose, if it's just to have some like backbone to talk about what we believe as if we really believe it and not be ashamed about it and just if people are upset then I guess they're upset that we believe these things so I wanted something about to, to, to help me with that and then I've always been completely convicted that the defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an unassailable fact of history and this is because of the work we know not only from scripture but from other historians that have shown that this wasn't done in darkness or in a corner and the modern world's treatment of the history of the resurrection as a myth or a fabrication or something on the level with the other the other stories of the ancient world is is nigh on laughable to anybody who would call themselves a scientist and yet we find the very opposite of that always being parroted around and, and trotted out there and many Christians don't have then the confidence that this should give them. It's not as though faith is not a, a subjective reality at a certain point. That, that the experience of God justifying you is one that you receive internally and you must experience that on your own. You confess, you believe, I can't judge your heart. That's true. That's true. 
But uh, the coming of a clear word that is never changing, that that changes you, that goes into you and comes out of you again, that universally is what the Christian faith is, um, the belief that the resurrection is that is enough that you don't have to like go into conversations with it worried about whether you're not going to know how to answer their argument about fifth day, sixth day creation or about uh, same-sex marriage because, frankly, you can always just fall back on what you know to be true in the resurrection. Anything else that would make you question anything else comes back to, well, my Lord says this. And then from there, if you know your Bible just a touch, you can defend yourself against the accuser and backtrack out of conversations in which you feel uh, oppressed or attacked in your faith. And you can begin to try to stay in conversations and move conversations in which you have a real conversation with someone where they're listening to try to advocate for a faith in this very thing, the resurrection, which the book then tries to show um, both of these things. It wants to teach you how to be a good conversationalist and then also give you just just enough foundation to know with certainty you can defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a couple statements and and uh, uh, not let anybody put you off your game just by throwing a bunch of Wikipedia quotes at you. Um, now, I say I did all of this as an attempt to learn it myself, and then I'm also following a, a different mode of writing than I have for my previous books. I'm putting into practice something called uh, <clears throat> Publish Then Filter, as opposed to a, a theory called Filter Then Publish, and this comes from a book called Here Comes Everybody by Clay Shirky. I read many, many years ago. Uh, but the idea is that prior to the internet, the most effective way to get information out was to filter it, that is, get rid of all the typos and the dirt and the mistakes, and then publish it. Um, and uh, you would be able to kind of control a really streamlined flow of information. What Shirky proposes is that in the internet age, while you can still do that, it will become increasingly expensive and even ineffective as opposed to publishing and then filtering, uh, which is to say um, I took this book to print well before the other books would have ever been in print. And in some ways, I think it really reflects that as a read. And I feel that as an author, and I knew that going in. And yet at the same time, I was applying another strategy from a, a book called um, How to how to Take Smart Notes by Sanka Ahrens, which suggests that just a pile of your notes is way better than you ever thought it was if you put it together one more time. And uh, so that's what I did is I put all my notes together from a couple of books on uh, it was like Greg Kugel's Tactics and you got a little bit of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends of Influence People and, and some, um, uh, uh, some apologetic for the resurrection and we put that in a mix and out comes this. What is this? This is the book I need to read. Right? And now you've read it, and I hear from you that it's benefiting you. Great. It's not done yet, I don't think. So what I really want most, so what I think is going to be most beneficial is not any of what I just said, but then what you found that either inspired you to do something that you just want to share again and exposit on, um, or the things where you're like, okay, I'm getting this, I'm getting this, I'm getting this, but this part that you said this, that didn't make any sense. There I can really help you right now. Right? I, can, I can try to give you a piece that would fill in that gap. So to do this, we're going to have to go to, um, to your audio on the Zoom. And if on YouTube the audio doesn't come through, I will try to remember to repeat the question before, uh, before we get there. But uh, running over to Zoom, and I think it's on whoever talks, it's going to show up on you. So you guys got a plan for that? Anybody? That'd be great. That'd be really helpful. I'm going to get a piece of paper to take notes. Hold on real fast. That's awesome. I've got some decaf coffee for the evening, but don't be ashamed on my account. A prost. A prost indeed. A lot of folks is something you said early on, which I think is very significant, but it was pretty esoteric. From my art history, I was an art major in my undergrad. Um, 
And uh, so I know a lot about Dadaism. <laughs> that. Yeah. Slash Dorita. I, I, I'm, I'm a little weak on my Jacques Dorita philosophy. Uh, I, that's postmodernism, I believe, right? So yeah. can you unpack that a little bit for our men? And uh, how does that, uh, what, what do we need to know about that to help in our conversation with uh, the modern world? That's such a cool, a cool um, question. Uh, and I, I think I think the sound was working. Um, they can barely hear, but but can understand so well. So the the question was about um, the the phrase uh, "da da deridaists" or something like that, uh, when perhaps alluding to uh, postmodernism. And then what what am I getting at with that? Um, yeah, there's so much behind that for me as a phrase. It really is one of those moments where you see my snark as a writer escaping me. And, you know, I really, a better, another edit might have pulled that one out, or an editor probably would have pulled that one out. Because um, what I'm doing is um, I, I was letting myself scoff at what we've subjected ourselves to as a philosophy of conversation, um, which is that miscommunication is the reigning norm uh, and that we should expect to be corrected from the world outside regularly um, uh, and that we should expect to find ourselves wrong and the authorities right even if those things change. So in a sense, uh, gaslighting, but gaslighting is like this political thing more recently that's happened, uh, you know, kind of hyper or, or quickly. What was going on in the the movement from modernism into postmodernism uh, is a very subtle rejection of reality itself, and this happened most among poets and artists, but also among linguistic theorists. And so, unless you're in those schools or looking at what happened to those schools before and then after World War One, uh, you are not going to hear about the Dadaists, and you're not going to hear about Derrida. Um, uh, but you are going to be impacted by what they teach, which ironically sounds like babala gubala gubala nonsense. Uh, basically, their theories both amount to nobody means anything ever, and so nothing means anything ever. And yet, these were these were lauded poets and a scholar who wrote tomes that were super thick, tomes on how nothing had any meaning, right? And and the fact that their their names, his name's Derrida, Derrida, and I, I might be saying the French wrong, but the Dadaists, that was really what they called themselves, and they really were asserting that that Dada was the most anybody could actually make as a, as a cognitive of noise that everything else was just pretend and we're all lying to each other and you know uh, pretend you know drooling or something um and you know i found the dadaists when i was uh studying poetry at sonoma state university for my undergrad and we had to swallow so much of this california um literature there was some really good ethnic literature that i had to read but there was a whole lot of 60s and 70s just uh tripe really uh, anti-material, anti-thought tripe. And mo the modern world, which came before World War I, this is my book Broken really deals with these topics a bit more. Um, the modern world, which came before World War I, was so sure of man's ability to think through anything that it really believed that arming ourselves to the teeth would bring about world peace, and instead it brought about World War I. What happened then was rather than wisely realize that a happy medium might might do the world uh, better. Well, we're not really run by a king like that anyway. We just need jerk the other way as hard as we can. And these are kind of like millennium long, 500 year to millennium long patterns. I think you can observe in history. Now, again, I'm, I'm 
I'm submitting that going deeper back, you know, it was, was the middle ages of mysticism followed by an enlightenment rationalism followed by a postmodern mysticism and all history going back and forth. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is these are lies the devil always uses, right? Uh, and that we see the lie that, um, that reality is untrustworthy and your experience is unique. So you might be born with this or that, but you can call yourself a dog if you want to. And everyone else has to tell you you're right. Um, that lack of reality is postmodern, that it's, it's post-believing that you can think and see and speak with common sense and into believing that there is no common sense and you might as well just say da 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 and that's all you can really say. Um, and what in that page I think I'm saying is that Christians have to just see that for the absolute nonsense that it is and just dismiss it. And anyone who wants to argue with it, just kind of look at them like they're mad and then walk on because they are arguing nonsense at a certain point. Now, what does that mean? And how does that come down to you? It means like when people say, well, that's just your opinion. And when somebody says, well, that's just your opinion, you now know that they are incapable of having conversation. They have no ability to exchange information, to learn or grow. Their mind is a closed steel trap. And that doesn't mean you can't be kind to them, you can't love them, you can't serve them, you can't be a Christian to them. It just means you shouldn't be deceived into thinking they're listening to you. And you shouldn't talk as if they are. <laughs> and you might then say different things. And you might just listen more than you talk. And then you might learn a thing or two that might lead you into saying what they actually need to hear, which might get you to being, you know, again, where you can confess the resurrection in their hearing. Now, I'm not claiming, again, to be a master at that. Um, what I'm saying is that I think that strategy is pretty organically human and Christian and, and uh, worth putting into practice um, over time and slowly. So thank you, Pastor Duncan, for the question. I hope, I hope that did justice to the answer. Um, yeah. So getting at kind of the last part of what you were saying there, mm. I'll, I'll talk kind of about what I wanted to ask you about. So one of the things that I love the most about it is um that it it's it kind of comes across as so so simple and, and no nonsense and about how we go about this right like in terms of of uh, the questions we we try to trick ourselves into of oh am I really qualified to talk like this or mm. what would I even say right. things like that well I mean you say are you baptized um, and things like that so then later on you get into how to have that dialogue and it's not so much a matter of um, saying Bible verses or saying facts or like quoting theologians, but a matter of uh, of asking questions and gaining understanding and building trust with those, especially those that are um, against what we're trying to talk to them about. So could you talk a little bit about um, it, building, uh, building a dialogue with, someone who's trying to attack what you're saying right. um, through rhetoric. Well, and again, the appendix of trolls is there on uh, for a reason too, mm -hmm. right? That there's a point at which the person has no intention of having a conversation and I'm going to advocate you leave the conversation. Uh, you, you wipe the dust off your feet in terms of your need to give time to their arguments. This doesn't mean that you're going to be a jerk to them. You're going to be uncivil to them, that if they're starving, you wouldn't give them water and food to eat, right? It, it just means that if they want to take more of your time and energy away from telling people who might want to hear about Jesus about Jesus so that they can argue about how they don't want to know about Jesus, I think you shouldn't have to do that. You just walk away from that one, right? Um, and, and unequivocally knowing that election is on God, not on you. 
and, and if you are, have put yourself in the position to confess Christ and he doesn't give you the opportunity, that's not on you. I mean, he, if you've denied the opportunity when you've been given it, that is on you, right? So that's a different thing. I, I don't want to make it sound like you have nothing to, to um, participate in in conversion of others, in the conversations that we have with others. It's not as though um, God does not enliven us unto action, but um, <clears throat> this is, I'm going to say this because it's really helpful to make, make it clear. The confessions in the Formula of Concord uh, talk about distinguishing between like two horses pulling a cart and like a horse pulling a cart with someone in the cart. Like in both situations, the person, if you're the person in the cart, you're getting somewhere the same way that if you're helping pull the cart, you're getting somewhere. You're going along for the ride. But you're not, you're not the energizing power of the reality. So the Christian experience of new life in this age is that. You're experiencing like the full regenerative awakening of being a new man while tied to an old flesh, which is quite confusing and frustrating at times. But you're really having that happen by God shoving enough of it into you at the right times to elect Christians around you. Now, this is a dynamically mysterious thing in which the other side of the equation is how we are constantly trying to destroy this. And he, in fact, lets some of us do that. And I don't want to get into that. There's a couple of pages on that, uh, on what election is and what a, what a sticky wicket it is. And those pages intentionally say, let's not argue about this. Like, here's what we know. Stop arguing and like, just go preach the gospel. <laughs> go tell people they're risen. And, and, and because Christ is. And, and have some conviction in that. Um, now, again, I don't know uh, entirely that I, I think I'm going to tangent it off your question um, a little bit there. Uh, I'm trying to recall it. Uh, can you just repeat it real quick, the, the specific question? Yeah, so my question was essentially uh, how, to, how to go about building a conversation with someone right. With, with questions. Right. So now when you're no longer – we're not in a situation where you're trying to fight somebody who doesn't want to hear about Jesus but wants to fight about not hearing about Jesus. Instead, you're in a conversation with somebody who is just genuinely a human being who's talking to you about life and sharing maybe some real stuff. And if you can slow down enough from whatever your first world agenda is that you think the clock has to make you blah, blah, and see the pain in that human being, you might even be able just to to care. And that would be what Christians do. And then from there... The opportunity to not kind of um, preach in the negative sense of the word, your finger wagon, but the opportunity to console them with your religion just might arise, <laughs> especially in an age as chaotic and dark as our own, where everybody else's religions are falling apart. You know, it, it really might work. And it's not about working. And that's kind of the key. You have to know that you're not going to make any of this happen. Uh, you are there along for the ride with some very great and precious promises that are guaranteed to work, I don't know, a third of the time, symbolically speaking. So, you know, great. Um, owning that is going to be the way then to every time you pass a human being, I mean, I'll, just, I'll say that what happens to me. I'll, I'll come up, what was the most recent one? It had to be a service industry in a moment where I'm passing someone who I'm the master paying money to that person who works the machine somewhere and they're a human, but yeah, no, I'm busy. It's my day and they work here. So whatever, I move on and do my thing. Like even that moment to like see the human over there 
who they are, the daily grind, the pain of their work. Look them in the eye. Figure out where they're, where are their gods? Who do they worship? And then ask, you know, Lord, how would I talk to them? Even before I move, just, just that much, right? To, to, and that's so contrary to the modern pressure that mission usually tries to enact to begin with and that we're under just all the time. We're just unable to take the time to love each other. And so in some ways, the book really is about that. <laughs> you know, well, here, if you would like someone else to be a Christian, first take some time to love them. It's not that God can't change them through the first sermon they ever hear or the first time you tell them Jesus is risen. He might. But the history of conversion is a little more like you just keep saying it over time while loving them and they forget that they didn't believe it. <laughs> and suddenly they think they're Christians. I'm not kidding. Like, and, and Ankin, I know uh, you may have seen this, you may have not. As a pastor, you get somewhere and you're they're long enough locally and you just start walking around like the pastor and they don't have one. You just start walking around like the pastor. 15 years later, you're their pastor. And if you just start talking to them like you are and telling them what they believe, they'll forget they never knew. They'll think that you know what they, oh, of course I knew that, Pastor. It's not about deceiving people. It's about trust. People place trust in humans for good reason. And Christians have the capacity to earn that trust at a supernatural level. And so again, the book is about like, let's focus on engendering some of that in our individual lives in the hopes that over a generation or three, maybe we can take back some ground on this dark continent. As opposed to thinking one more, you know, heave-ho of the old industrialized program machine is going to really help us do much of anything. Um, forgive my little cynicism there at the end. I'm, I want to be a stoic, but I tend to be a cynic, uh, especially after seven. So, uh, <laughs> uh, That's okay. Um, thank you. That I, I like that. That was a good answer. Um, but... And I think especially with all the craziness that seems to be going on nowadays, the best way to look at it is, regardless of the fact of whether the world falls apart or not, Jesus Christ is risen at the end of the day. That's the truth. That's the truth. So, like, like no matter, I, again, without getting too one-sided on any politics, um, it's hard to be in a country that in theory has free and fair elections, where after a week you have lots of people shouting about how one side's lying and it's not them. You know, what do you make of that? Uh, as a child of the 80s, as I am, you know, Americana's glory days. Uh, mm -hmm. Where are we? Who are we? What are, I, I thought all this was settled. Wait a minute. And um, it'd be very easy to, um, to get anxious about that. I, I can't say I haven't, I guess, to some extent. And yet, because I have a king whose kingdom is not only not of this world, it's that too. Like, when I die, I go to be with him. I have a second life. This is the first one, and it's a freebie. Um, that's all true. And yet, in this first one that's a freebie, the law of creation, the natural orders, the cosmic design is not only built to be good, but in Christ is redeemed good and given to us as wisdom. So that we can know that a Christian who loves the Ten Commandments might have his whole house get destroyed by all sorts of stuff. But if his son lives and he's still got the Ten Commandments and the Creed and the Lord's Prayer, there's going to be a city there in three generations. And so that's who we are. And right now then should not be the time we're afraid. 
Now it's like, ooh, all the property is about to get cheap. Time to dig in. You know, get a hold of some, plan long term, build some fences. You know, um, that kind of thinking is very unmodern. And I'll, I'll admit it, like I said this on my Saturday show just last Saturday, but it is – I'm kind of on a personal crusade to reject modernism outright. Um, I'm going to keep electricity and plumbing, um, but I'm, I'm going to rethink them. You know, ground up first principle. I'm going to study it. But like I don't know. I mean, let me put it another way. I'm going to just give you the full end of my crazy here. I'm a sci-fi fantasy nerd and I like gamifying my life because it makes life more fun. So um, the more I can pretend my life is a sci-fi or fantasy novel, the better. So I live on a, a little tiny pond. It's a, it's a, a big pond, a small lake. I'm very excited about it. We just moved here. It's been a dream of mine to live on water my whole life. And uh, some of the best days this fall here in, in uh, northern Illinois, um, out come the ladybugs. And uh, there was a day when uh, it must have been like the, the, the cornfields, oh, I don't know, mile that way we're getting getting harvested and we had to have thousands of these things crawling all over my house and man did i hate i was i was running around and they're there they've been in their house every day uh for three weeks now we'll find five seven ten of them on the ceiling you gotta vacuum them up they're just and they they squish and they smell and then they if you don't get them they die and they squish and smell anyway they're just ridiculous little things and um uh so you know in my head i'm, I'm complaining about that and and then um God, i wish i could remember how what spawned this thought my my youngest daughter, whose name is Alleluia, um, has recently discovered uh, a little kids series on fairies. Books of uh, really for uh, tailored for young reader little girls, but about fairies. And um, my sister, who's much older, has always been sort of like a, a fantasy fairy nerd too. So somehow that all congealed. So I'm watching one of these bugs land on me outside the other day, and I want to squish it. I want to flick it like I normally do. I'm so just I hate these things. And I looked at it and it opened its wings and I could see its little insect body and like all the layers of its wings open up. And I went, dear heavens, it's an evil fairy, but it's a fairy. It's a fairy. Dear, they're real. Why do we kill the fairies? I was like the first thought I had. We're killing the fairies. And it was like, wait, Jonathan, they are evil fairies. Like that part came back. Like that one, the mosquitoes are very evil fairies. But why am I telling that story? Well, because modernism has just renamed a bunch of stuff that used to be considered quite phenomenally impressive and that we could spend time looking at it and just thinking like God made that and it's a big deal. And even a ladybug that's a pest, frankly, is on that level of stunning if you can take the time to think about it, which the modern world again won't let you do. Modern world is, is ultimately a worship of the clock and it will not let you rest and it wears on you. Um, so, you know, my little, my little, experimentation in real world insects being, you know, what, what, uh, Grinches and gremlins were, you know, all came from in the ancient stories or, or whatever. Um, to be able to believe that there's an unseen world with a lot more power than we give it credit, always enacting the creative orders around us and on our side. And that the King at the very top of the whole thing is one of us, our brother, um, that confidence he has risen. It's just so much more than like like he has risen. I mean, it is, but the way the LCMS says it on Easter and then never else, it's just so much more. It's like everything. Huh? So you're saying that Christians are the only ones who have been red-pilled? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you, you hit on my favorite like analogy, Kurt. I try not to use it because nobody who's under like 28 
right, has seen that movie. I made my kids watch it. it I saw that movie for the first time two days ago. Oh, really? I up, I, I, yeah, I, my, my, my son and I watched it. And I kid you not, I picked up your book wherever I was at, and you made some a reference. Reference, and I'm going, okay, that's weird. It is. That's the that's the uh, the, the glitch right there for you. And the Lord <laughs> builds them in. I'm I'm not kidding. There's a lot of coincidences in life, and I don't think they're there for us to prove God exists or anything like that. But I do think that those who believe in the creation can see the creation is actually alive. Uh, and the Matrix, though, is is a little bit of a of a different uh, analogy, I think, or a more more valuable analogy. I shouldn't say that way. The the Matrix is one of the most valuable analogies we have, not only as Christians understanding what it means to have our, our heads yanked out of the lie and put on firm ground, um, but I think it also applies to some extent to the magic of the modern media world. I actually think that's what the movie's really about. It's not really about Christianity. It's about the lying capacity of mass media. And how if you take your um, if you take the red pill and you step outside and you ask, okay, if they shut that supermarket down next week, what would I do? Um, you might feel like you're on uh, what was it the Nemo? I think is the name of the ship. You know where you're floating through. You just don't have as much. You're awful reliant. America Nebuchadnezzar. Are, Nebuchadnezzar, thank you. You're awful reliant upon the world around you, and so like the one guy who wants to go back into the Matrix, right? He'd rather be in the lie. And so the lie of modern American media, of this peaceful, wonderful, uh, um, always going to be safe place, which this isn't just like the last election. This is the last 60 years, uh, the the post-40s ideal of America. um, That's a great mythology um, that has deceived us. It is not as though we are not to be Americans and to, you know, see our duty to neighbor, to render under Caesar what is Caesar's. but it, it is to fail to see how much of that country now is run by stories that are told by small groups of people that effectively get to go in close to your face and like shove emotional information into you for hours at a time and even then create things that make you engage and start interacting wherein you lose self-control and where that's not only demonstrable but they're making money on it and then repackaging it and selling it back to you. So to Unplug your head from that, I think, is a pretty big red pill. Um, Christianity should do that like this, but it hasn't, and that's interesting. Why is it that the lies that are told on TV are lies Christians are willing to believe, even if you open the Bible and show them how clear it is? Um, It's a testimony to the power of mass media to deceive. Um, but to push back on, again, the, the matrix for the, the Christian idea, um, the, the red pill is the notion that there is a reality that you cannot understand until you experience it. You, and once you experience it, then it is what it is. And that is very much what Christianity is. You can tell people about the facts and they can acknowledge those are the facts. But if the spirit does not enliven them, there is no breath in them. And um, if you don't like that, I'd, I'd say go back and read John 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, well, you know, good luck. See you later. <laughs> he doesn't really give him much time for not liking it. You know, what are you going to do? Of course, Nicodemus does find his way. Uh, God does tend to reveal these things to those who hunger for them. Um, but it's not by us uh, sticking up our hands, right, and saying, I'll take the blue pill, give me more lies. Um, and that that is the temptation. It, it always is. Um, 
I've been, uh, where was I writing this one down? I was pondering uh, the fool and the wise, according to Proverbs chapter one. And um, the fool hates wisdom and discipline is one verse three. And discipline, the fool hates discipline. And as a result, hates wisdom. What is it that makes a fool a fool? Proverbs also says, Solomon also says, both in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that with wisdom comes suffering. That the more knowledge you have, it doesn't decrease your pain, it increases your pain. And so what a fool does is he sees that. He understands that. He sees that wisdom needs discipline, which requires pain. And so suffering's part of the wisdom. And he decides that rather than be wise, he'd, he would rather remain a fool. Um, and that has been sort of the the broader path of American organized religion, Christians included, uh, for a while, to to better or worse effect across all parishes, all denominations, and all consciences. I don't think anybody should be exempted from this, myself included. I think Co has been a marvelous wake-up call. I'm very thankful for it myself. It's changed my life. Um, and my life was pretty good and Christian before that. It's better now. Um, and it's because of, of these kinds of things and the kind of fearlessness that we really ought to have because we do know we're immortal and we do know that we've been yanked out and we can see differently. Um, or do we know that, right? And so the book's written to like, well, let's, let's get back to what we know we know and have a little confidence in it. So, mm. who's up? All right. Ryan, you want to go ahead? Sure. I've got all sorts of thoughts swimming through my head. And the first thing that I was going to to mention or, or talk about was really what Justin covered, how effective questions are in terms of conversation mm-hmm. and in getting to the heart of issues. And I'll, I'll feed on that a little bit. I, I'm an agricultural engineer by training. And I think reading your book was the the first time, as, as I recall, that that I saw an analogy between Christianity and sharing your faith and the engineering profession. Hmm. How is that? Well, in engineering, you you first get enough education to go out and work under someone else mm-hmm. to get enough experience that then, after a total of eight years they trust you enough for you to take an exam that that really shows i guess your ability to correctly assess problems and and use that education and experience to uh, to to know how to address the problem and 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 define it and figure out what the answers are but as i've gone in my career you know you get out and deal in the real world uh, questions are really important where you're working with someone, in my case, rural landowners most of the time, where they're trying to do something with their property, usually in a working landscape, a farm um, or something like that. And there's an environmental problem to address. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and really, the similarity is that as Christians, well, as an engineer, you know, we have proven science and math and, and things that are are mostly irrefutable or at least widely accepted. Uh, And as Christians, we've got this Bible that has been proven over time to be reliable. Mm. And, and therefore as an engineer, 
you know, you, you have to learn how to avoid getting tied up in knots and, and people getting you to chase your own tail because hmm. you've got guides, you've got principles that you can rely on as the basis for having ongoing conversations. And when you meet people that are flying by the seat of their pants mm. and contradicting themselves and what have you, you know, understanding the basis and then asking questions, not necessarily to point out what is wrong in people's understanding of their situation or of the laws of gravity or what have you. But, you know, questions are a really key way to uh, to engage people in conversation and draw draw things out of people that that they may they may think two different things and you ask simply about the link between those and mm. and it, it may cause them to think about things in a way that they hadn't before so right. it's a little bit of a rambling but but that's kind of one of my main takeaways from reading but the you book really that, yeah you demonstrated the power of uh, of curiosity right um, in relationship building and how relationships can't exist if you don't have any curiosity in the other person, right? It cannot only be a one-way assertion fest. Um, and again, for whatever reason, most mission programs, even evangelism programs, they kind of approach it as it's a one-way mission fest or a one-way fest. We're going to get in there. We're going to do our job. We're going to sell the toaster. We're going to get out. And that approach is 200 years old. We know where it came from. We know the revivalist movement, <clears throat> the Phineas movement that brought it about, that we're still having advocates try to get it to be new and, and adopted is kind of weird. Um, but, it, you know, whatever. Um, what you're asserting is, is just that the common sense, again, this is a big part of talk them into it, is that common sense goes a long way with a lot of people. You got to have some patience. You got to be able to endure their lack of common sense. They recognize that they're listening to everybody else tell them a different story every three days, and then they're trying that one on to see if it works, and they think that's science. And, and you have to endure that long enough and like help them keep records of how it's not working so that they can track it, and then they'll be like, oh, look at that. Why is that? And then the moment they've turned and they've asked you a question, right? that's the other piece. Now they do want to hear whatever you have to say. I mean, you could lie. You could take their credit card number. I don't know, right? I mean, th that's powerful stuff um, that's in here. It really is. Um, and and evil men could use it evilly. Uh, even Dale Carnegie says that again in his book. Like you could you could take this stuff and try to become a wicked person with it. Um, in terms of recognizing the power of conversation, kindness, listening, um, that they are what some would call manipulative. Because they have a positive effect that you can see and enact on other people. But it's not really manipulative to seek someone's goodwill by listening and responding to what they say. I mean, it's like the opposite of manipulative, right? I mean, yet it does. If you do it towards someone intentionally, you will find you giving guidance to their life in a way that maybe they could never have seen. And again, that's just the power of asking questions and being a friend. And then you add on to that the fact of the resurrection, the unassailable fact of the resurrection. Um, the, the thing that I want to is uh, kind of, um, draw the difference between uh, what you said and Christianity, which the LCMS, I think, doesn't always do a good job of this. I think in the LCMS, we kind of feel like if I'm going to talk to someone about Jesus, I have to have so many this or that's of study and understanding behind my name, whatever it might be. And, you know, look look at all the training we give our pastors. And I don't want to decry that because we should give our pastors the highest training possible, uh, especially in original language work. Um, uh, but um, I lost it there for a second. I hate when I do this on TV. <laughs> I think it, 
I'm interpreting where you're yeah, going. Go is for it. You don't have to know everything about right. science and math and so on. You just, you just have to know enough to be, that's right. You know, know your limits that's right. and use what you know. And, uh, and if you don't know something, you know where to go to find the answer. That's exactly right. Right. And so if, if, if you know how to handle what you know how to handle, then you'll know when to stop before you're in trouble. And you'll know also where to go to get a better answer. And um, that's what then, again, for the uh, – oh, I just started my Apple Music for some reason. That's what the um, – a, a Christian must be on the disciplined path of learning to do. And I don't mean that in a sense of you have to do this to be saved. Um, I believe I, I believe it's more like – eventually one way or the other you're going to talk about Jesus or you're going to go to hell. Like That's just what's going to happen. And Jesus is going to bring the confession from your lips at a certain point. Oh, my goodness. There's a rabbit in my room, and he's dancing. That's hilarious. Maybe he'll come to me. Hold on. I can get him on camera. Come here, sweet rabbit. Come here. Come here, sweet rabbit. Can you come to me? Come on. Oh, no, he's going to run away. I'm doing this on national TV. Um, there's a rabbit. He's going to eat my, my stuff. He should not be in here. I'll be right back. Sweet rabbit. Olivier, you're going to be next. Hello. <laughs> uh, I wanted to mention while he's gone, uh, one of the things that I found, I don't know how earth shattering this is, but um, the last couple of times I've had encounters, I've had encounters with Mormon missionaries, uh, a couple of uh, young men coming to my door, is that uh, I, I will um, ask them to meet somewhere uh, we met at the library a few years ago and uh, we met at a cafe and instead of, you know, trying to initially engage them with, you know, their agenda, I simply, uh, um, asked them about their lives and themselves and showed an interest in them as individuals, not like, uh, you know, um, prospects and, uh, that kind of, um, that 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 uh, brought their guard down a little bit because you know they they always they've got their agenda the things they need to say and and I think you know, as Christians sometimes we bring an agenda to a conversation like that too it's a battle we want to win you know uh, and um, the last again the last couple encounters I've had with some of these young Mormon missionaries was very fruitful um, I mean um, met with them on several occasions and then um, we went our separate ways and I don't know if these men ever confess faith in the triune God and, and the true Jesus. But uh, it kind of changed my perspective on how I deal with all people um, uh, just hmm. by showing interest in them as individuals and asking questions about their lives. And uh, they were really, I, I could tell they didn't know what to make of me. <laughs> it's kind of surprising. For like, why do you care? <laughs> yeah. But it opened up, it opened up for further conversation rather than, Trying to trying to make you know make make theological points along the way. I'm, I'm building a rapport with them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm, and I'll go ahead. I'll say, uh, uh, Pastor Ankin, on the other side of what you're saying, because I'll forget this if I don't say it now. Um, we were talking about if people are getting a particular level of aggressive, um, learning to kind of tell the difference of when it's worth continuing that conversation and it's not. Um, in my own experience, I found that. People are angry for two reasons, um, and it's either they are intellectually set on where they're at and they're never going to come to terms with where you're at. But I've also found when people get angry, um, a lot of times they're just hurting, 
And I think that's one of the real strengths to this is we, a lot of times in apologetics, we get caught up in having the right answers when in reality, there's only one answer those people need and they have a hard time accepting it. But a lot of times they just need someone to cry with them or to hurt with them and just to hear, Hey, you're in pain. And I get that I'm in pain too. Hmm. And we can kind of be in pain together. And just that right there is so disarming for so many people that seem so opposed to the faith at times. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, People are not ready for honesty. (laughs) And the fact that we find even within our congregations, uh, the walls go up when you go to church, Uh, you put on a show when you go to church uh, honesty is not just kind of the way it all is. In fact, even sometimes we we hush hush it a little bit. You know, we, we want to make sure everything looks the way it should. I I I said to my congregation offhandedly the other other week because I I messed up pretty badly. I, I forget what I did, but I left something out. And um, I turn and I say, you know, we all got to get over the idea that this is a show. It's not a show. And so if I mess up, I'm not going to go on like it's the show. We're going to go back. <laughs> we're going to start worship again at that point, And we're going to pray to our God together. You know, because this is not a performance. We're not on a clock. We're not in a hurry. This isn't a, um, you're not a stamp on my day, this conversation with you. Um, something I got to get done to move on. And uh, we've all been trained to apply almost everything like that. Uh, time with our family. Even our entertainment's got to be like logged and scheduled. And, uh, I would contend that's, that's again that's the modern thing I'm just rejecting now. It's very unhealthy, um, but Christianity also has its own salve to it. So even within the whatever version of toil your life's going to be, because you can reject modernism, it's still going to be toil. <laughs> uh, whatever version of toil you're in, uh, the honesty to call a thing what it is, to see that it's actually good, even if it's suffering, it's good. Uh, even if it's your own life falling apart, God means it for good, and you just don't believe it, and that's your problem. Um, to begin to believe it, then in the face of problems, that becomes a great fuel that grows and strengthens. Um, and I would contend that it is the fuel of the suffering of the last six months or so that has made uh, men like yourselves and many others across the country uh, really wanting to say, where is Christian manhood? Where is where is the stand I need to take at this time? Um, I don't want to be just what this country is going to be. What does that mean? Um, and uh, the question it has to come back to, what does it mean that he has risen, right? If you're going to answer that, it goes back to what does it mean that Jesus Christ is a man born of woman, um, raised from the dead as the new Adam. Uh, and then for that reason, uh, you have to be able to have conversations with people who believe that. Right? And then go back to the text and study the texts about, um, uh, again, Paul saying to imitate him or about what man and woman are according to Scripture, which is so clear and so beautiful, um, to apply those things to your own life so that you do have a bigger package. It's not about having all the right information so that you can go out and convert people. Like I, I, It really is true. If you want to try to convert someone, all you need is he is risen. You are paid for. You are immortal now. He won't be long anyway. Come get baptized with me. It, 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 just say it over and over again every time you see someone for 15 years. And I'd say 50-50, you got a chance they follow you one time. And if you just never say anything else, never any other conversation, because that's the way conversation works. And that's the way the spirit works. It's just 
say those words. You just push them out there. You trust in those promises to be sufficient to carry it through. I'm not going to get back and finish my first point I started on, but I think I think the ending point is is good enough that that um, the amount of information you need for conversion. I'm going to get back to the ending point. The amount of information you need for conversion is so minimal, and yet what that does is it frees you to pursue eating the scriptures, imbibing the rest of the scriptures, not so that you can like get it right on a test or be good enough to go to confirmation. Any like that approach has got to die. And we've got to see that the rest of our lives, there's this book that like bleeds life as words. And we are to just feast upon this and in every opportunity, find more of it. And then believe that our, our skill of conversing with others, of trying to become better friends, fathers, and so forth, that whatever we're studying at that various time, it's going to pop up like the red pill did in Pastor Onkin's book, right when you need it. You don't even have to think like, oh, this is what I need. It's just, it'll be on your mind. You studied it this morning. You just said it out loud today because you ran into somebody who suffered. And you don't even know if it's really what they needed to hear, but it's the Bible verse you memorized this morning. And you know what? God's going to use it if you never see them again. Maybe he'll use it to damn them. That would be the gospel too actually. So what are we afraid of? And again, that's, that's kind of the gist here, right? Like I'm sick of being t- afraid of saying things about Jesus because of how people might respond. I just, I just, I'm sick of it. I can't do it anymore. It's like a fire in my bones. Um, so thank you for that comment. And you're so right then that um, what we're afraid to show is the pain. We're afraid to acknowledge that men have to deal with pain, that we deal with it differently than women, and that if we're compelled to deal with it the same way women do, we won't. And so (laughs) that doesn't work. Um, That men cannot survive in groups that are not exclusively men. Like we need groups of just men from time to time. Otherwise, we do not survive. Um, we, we, We fall apart. Um, we actually end up submitting to our wives, which we shouldn't do. Um, and so you know, all of that has to be recaptured and rebuilt amongst Christians for the sake of our congregations, for the sake of our children's congregations, and frankly, I think for the sake of like electricity in 100 years. You know, I'm nuts. So uh, I think in those terms. Um, not in that direction. Back on the stuff that I can speak with authority on. Any, anybody else got one? Olivier, go ahead. Um, yeah, um... It's an interesting book uh, to read through. I'm maybe halfway or so. Um, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around how, how to read it, um, just because it's, you know, obviously, as you said, it's, it's quite different. Yeah. Um, the thought I have and, and the question I have is when I've talked with, you know, like a coworker, for example, who's a, who, who I would call a friend, and we might talk about politics or, or you know, so society and things like that, and what what comes into my mind is, can you maybe elaborate or have any thoughts on like finding uh, common ground in worldview, right? Yeah. So like I, I, when I talk to someone, I can be like, uh, sometimes it depends on the person, right? Like this person I'm thinking of, um, we're fairly close, so I can be more direct, right? I'd be like, well, my worldview says people are fallen. Mm-hmm. They might civilly appear good and be good in a civil sense, but 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 they may not, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then try to work into ways of maybe ex- slowly expose my worldview and, and see like, what is, what is that other person have in their worldview that uh, I can find as a, I don't know, a touchstone or a, or a common 
common right. point. No, right. I, I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit, but that's kind of a thought I had. No, they're, they're good. I'm, I'm going to uh, speak first to what you said about you know the style of the book. And at first I thought maybe that was a result. I didn't first. At first I thought I'm writing a wisdom book like The Art of War. And then later I thought, oh, it's just a pile of notes I published. And then later I thought again, no, I think I really did that on purpose. <laughs> and so I'm still kind of struggling with whether that's right or not. Um, but what I would suggest is this, that you read a chapter a day. That's really what it's meant to be. And if you try to read it faster, especially early on, it's clunkier early on. I think it gets much better after about page 20. Um, but especially early on, you're just not going to let the challenging thought gist with you enough. You need it to sit there and hit you a bit. And um, so that's that's what I would, be, I would recommend is you read a chapter a day. And if you can, write down at least one sentence on the chapter that's not a direct quote from the chapter. Like read the chapter and just write one thought down. And then once you're done with all those chapters, don't go back and read my book. Go down back and read all your thoughts in a row. Bam, 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 bam. Like it's your own little book. And whatever you got out of that, I can guarantee you it will have been worth reading the book for that. Um, you can do that with any book. But doing it with my book makes me feel better and probably will help you talk to your friends and neighbors about Jesus. So that's smart noting. It's a really, really useful tool and will make you able to congest books pretty quickly um, and maybe even publish. Uh, so that's the style of writing. Um, on looking for common ground, um, I'm going to say the, the first thing in, in all of this when it comes to, like, say, an individual that you're talking to, the person has a name, right? Um, it's not like the, the proverbial monk somewhere far away. Um, if you really honestly want that person to rise from the dead, you need to ask Jesus before you do anything else. Um, prayer to the Lord of the harvest is the only thing we can do if there's anything we can actually do. Um, I like basketball a ton. I'm going to give you an analogy. I like basketball so much. I have spent a lifetime trying to get good at basketball. In fact, I don't think I'm bad. I've got a pretty decent shot, except for that I've also got a very bad shot. I have two shots. One always goes in, swish. One always misses short and left, and I can feel it in my elbow too, so I know before it hits the rim every single time. And I know what causes it is that the moment before I shoot it, I think about how I ought to shoot it. And that's when I shoot it bad. And if I could just forget for half a second that it's a game and just spontaneously aim at that rim over there, I'll probably make it. That's kind of how confessing the resurrection is. Like if you are working up your plan for when you're going to work it in, you're going to just stumble all over yourself. <clears throat> As opposed to praying that the person would be a believer and then impatience taking this this question route, um, it's just going to show up. So your question about common ground is very right, but what I don't want you to do is think you have to hunt for it. You just have to be interested in them, and it's going to show up. Of you're, We're all human. I mean, we have a lot of differences. There's a lot of opinions about what we can do. I mean, so, everybody likes different kinds of food, and we can, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we're not that different. I mean, <laughs> I almost said nobody's drinking their pee. However, there are people who do. Very, very few people do extreme things, right? Most people do common things. And it's in those commonalities. Even like, how did you deal with your lawn? 
right? Um, uh, did the tree fall down and can I help you? These are not sufficient, by the way. It's important. This is not Christianity per se. This is kindness. This is love. This is what Christians think life is, right? Like, so, so it's not mission to go help my neighbor with the tree and have a conversation about his yard. However, it's love. And then while I'm showing love, God promises that the promises on me and Christ will bleed out on others. And that happens when the words I'm praying day in and day out become not only the words I'm praying because I have to, they just happen to be what I think. <laughs> and then they become what I say. So when we're talking about the tree and they confess this, that, the other thing, I can tell them how the Lord Jesus is in charge of their life. Whether they believe it or not, I'll just tell them it's the truth. And then see what happens and move on, right? And if they've got enough trust in me, I mentioned this to the pastor side of it, they think I'm their pastor because I've been in the, in the neighborhood for three years. They're going to believe me that Jesus Christ is their God. And you know what? If at the end of the day, the election doesn't work that way and they're false Christians, again, like who's trying to control this? Where do we think we're in charge of the seed? We're just supposed to throw it, <laughs> you know? So on that, there is so much common ground when we don't hunt for it with everybody. Because as was said a moment ago, everyone's fighting a battle nobody knows anything about. Everyone's got an inner monologue that's filled with self-hate. One way or the other, we've been traumatized somehow by the world. And part of that trauma is an inner voice that goes this way and accuses 24-7. And that voice is you. That voice is, is Satan. That voice is your flesh. That voice is right probably 98% of the time. Um, and that, that voice is also, again, the, the liar who would deceive you into thinking that you must justify yourself over and against that voice. And that inner life, everyone's living that one way or the other, ver, ver, with one religion or another. You have it according to your flesh, and then your religion has a different myth, right? And by myth, I don't mean fake. I mean like a different story, a different meta, a different arc. Um, and, and your arc is not uh, accusation. It is, it is declaration of resurrection. And you're like, whoa, here I go. Whoa, I can't help it. It feels really weird. I'm a sinner. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to do this. And he's like, yep. Yeah, but I got you. And, and it is that conviction believed that will just come out of you when you're talking to others. But then that happens again when you are in prayerful habit. Uh, and by prayerful habit, I don't mean just kind of wanderingly praying about people. I mean diligently opening the Psalms as your prayer book, because it is. Um, I, I mean diligently, including with and on the Psalms, uh, then direct connections to the world around you. So when you pray uh, for, um, I'll try to come up with a quick example, you know, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, uh, and to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, let them lead, be led astray with the workers of iniquity, Psalm 125. You know, like, when I pray that, um, I pray that for the election, straight up. And even if I have a, a name in mind, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm really not praying for the name. I'm praying that the Lord Jesus would make the good men reign and the bad men fall, right? And like living in that trust in my God and the belief that that life with my God not only will grow, but will see results. That is that my life will be filled with contentment and, um, uh, again, growing patience, uh, seeking of peace with my neighbor. Um, that's the potency to endure any conversation and, frankly, any government at the end of the day uh, because I know that these words will, will endure. Um, so I guess I haven't given you enough um, uh, maybe affirmation on the common ground. I know the book definitely talks about it. You're searching for it. You definitely are. I just... I, I want to be careful that we don't see that as sufficient. The, the hunt for common ground is more like being aware that 
as you're having these conversations and asking questions, you're going to find that even in other religions, these people aren't as different from you as you might think, um, especially your worst instincts. And by worst instincts, I don't necessarily mean so much your flagrant sins as your most pious ones. Um, uh, your, your, your tendency to try to be good in all the wrong ways. Most people are living that all the time. And that's the common ground where if you can get them to admit it, right? That's when you really touch on their fear. Um, you get them to talk about their real gods. And, and I'm not saying at that moment, say, well, Jesus is better. No, maybe just let their real gods die in the vine a little bit for them, you know? Um, how's that feeling? How's that working for you? What are you doing about it? You pray to it to get an answer? I mean, those are fair questions to ask your friends, <laughs> you know? Um, and they, they can throw them back on you, so you better be careful what you pray for and how you expect answers. But um, beginning with prayer, Understanding common ground arises out of the common human condition and then having the patience to wait for it in the belief that your own personal growth and study in the Word of God will give you what you need to say at the right time. It's not voodoo so much as just knowing that God's Word's pretty alive and active and there's not too much you read that's going to be wrong to say any given day to somebody else. Uh, you know, it, it's going to usually be the words of life somehow, some way. So, did I get where you needed me to go? Yeah, no, that's great. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. I think the more, the more, what I'm part of what I'm getting from your answer is the more you're willing to share of yourself with them, the more they're going to share back and you'll find some common ground to, to continue the conversation, yep. but that's not the point. The, yep. the, the point is get that to Jesus. Well, it get is the, the point. Get the conversation up that way. It's not the point in terms of conversion, but it is the point because I mean, Jesus wants me to love my neighbor even if I know he's reprobate and going to hell and there's nothing I can do about it. He doesn't want me to treat him worse. Now, I'm not saying that, like, say, we have a mass murderer next door and we let him do whatever we, he wants. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but I'm saying that, generally speaking, 98, 97, 95% of people are normal people who are not mass murderers, and many of them will never believe, and we shouldn't treat them any different. We shouldn't not be their friends and not fix their houses because they won't convert. I call that hypocrisy. What we have is an electing God who we know is going to drag a net through the world via us being who we are, which is going to be more loving people than we were without him. And in that net that he's dragging through, which is he has risen, good fish are just going to start showing up. And yeehaw, we say amen to that and drag him along. And then those who don't come, we just wait and pray still more. Right? Uh, but... Uh, the need to tally our score of salvation, I get it because we have real people we care about. We want to see them saved. The Bible needs to be more true than even our desire to see the loved one we love saved. Uh, the blood of Jesus is thicker than ours. And if we don't remember that, in some ways our attempts at mission are idolatries themselves. And we, we, our Lord in his grace might save the person anyway. God bless him if he does, but it's the kind of moment where you realize, is my idolatry the very thing in the way right now? And honestly, every day you find that somewhere. And I don't think it's wrong then to, to say, maybe we should stop trying to convert people. <laughs> Just get a little more into believing it ourselves and not letting it be taken from us. And then being willing to talk about it when we are loving people who find enough trust in us to actually say, why are you doing this? Or how come you can handle this differently than I can? That's what we want to get to that point, right? 
um, where I don't like the song. It's such a terrible song. They know we are Christians by our love. Um, it really is not fair, and we should never expect the world to convert because we've suddenly loved them enough or something like that. But our task as we go into all nations, baptizing and teaching everything that Christ commanded, uh, is again to be the new men of a world that cannot die in the here and now, which means in a sense likened to the angels, not respecters of men, not with any care whether you yourself are good or evil, but simply that I'm going to be good to you. And when you do that, you're going to tell the truth, whatever it is. And when it's going to be, he has risen, you'll know. And when it's going to be, can I help you with that? I mean, you'll know, right? And the book is, again, a, a meditation for pondering that over and over again, because it's not like this just happens. It does just happen. I would contend if you read the Psalms, and frankly, I think you just read the Psalms, you get all this without me. Um, but um, by investing yourself in those words in the Psalter, by investing yourself in a devotional that that ties you to these thoughts repeatedly over time. Um, you're kind of building a network in your head for the thought process, which I, I hope ultimately is a form of patience, um, a form of patience and readiness uh, mixed together. So um, again, I hope that gives a structure to, to everything else. I would, to jump off of that, I would say that through that devotional life, um, whether, whether it's reading your book or, or the continuous reading of the Psalms or, or Bible passages or whatever, um, it's it's not the fruits of our effort or anything that we're doing towards that person or towards our own spiritual life. It's what the Holy Spirit is working within us, and the fruits of that are going to show regardless. Right. So the fruit of the Spirit idea is a gospel idea in Lutheran terms that is an elective idea. It's what God is doing. Uh, the deeds of darkness are what we can see that man does without God. Uh, when you look at Galatians 5 and, and the battle between flesh and darkness, I think this is a battle between the gospel believer, the one who knows he's saved by grace, and the one who's trying to justify himself. Uh, and yet we also see Paul saying pretty clearly then that the one who is the believer who walks by his grace um, is going to find in himself not merely like a growing level of faith and love as some sort of mark of honor or badge. Uh, it's not... Love doesn't grow by seeing itself. You're going to have instead uh, uh, the faith, hope, and love more being a way of describing your hunger for the scriptures just becoming even more ravenous. Uh, your desire to talk with those who look forward to the same reality, the same eternity you do, um, being just more of who you are, more of your identity. Um, the deeds of darkness then are ones which Christians certainly feel the temptation to in our flesh. And that's important. And a lot of Lutheran pastors will be pretty good at pointing out that um, uh, those deeds of darkness are not things Christians should do, um, but we all feel tempted by them at various times. Uh, what the text though in, in Galatians 5 is saying um, is that groups of people that allow that kind of behavior in their midst and never call it out are not Christians, <laughs> uh, not as a group, right? And so similarly, Groups of people in which there is no expression of love or faith or kindness or self-control, um, none, no desire for these things. Uh, you should flee such places and seek where the Spirit is. Now, do you find the Spirit only in love and patience? No, you don't. You find the Spirit where Christ is preached as risen from the dead, according to the institution of his words about baptism and the supper and, and these things. But just finding the external marks of the church does not guarantee spiritual believers and, and people who, who buy into that. Uh, 
Um, so then what does that mean? Not that you go and judge everyone else, but that you make sure, first and foremost, you devote your life to being the good man of God that you ought to be. And then, you know, aligning yourself with other good men that you find, especially under the allegiance of a pastor's flag, right? So you can wave that banner where you are. Um, and none of this should be about your own name, uh, the name of your family, or your ability to stand on Judgment Day with some sort of vindication in yourself. Rather, this is all based on the fact that you're not worried about Judgment Day because it's taken care of and it's over and you're pretty sure whatever's happening then, it's it's going to rock compared to now. So right now, it's about leveraging like all the ammo we got into the into the um, you know the sa- the, um, the kamikaze attack on the Death Star that you know the the, the little a a um, a wing did there at the end of Return of the Jedi. We want to take everything we got and shove it in the devil's eye on our way out the door. Um, why not? Um, uh, <laughs> what good is it to build castles here? And and I say that you know it sounds sanctimonious, I guess, because life is real. I got kids. I got you know mouths to feed and clothes to put on people's backs. And yes, you cannot avoid these things. You must indeed labor with the world. There's a big difference between laboring with the world and ensuring daily bread not only for tomorrow but for the next 35 years. That might be a bit of a high mark for the history of humanity, for those who are creatures and are not gods. And it's not as though, again, that if you're a good king, that is, you know, you're a good father, or where you are, you can see a way to build for generations to come that you wouldn't. It's not to decry that either. Do that if you can. Um, It's just to recognize that what is real is right now. And everything about tomorrow or what's to come is a story you're telling yourself until it gets here. And it might never get here. <laughs> uh, and again, my conviction with this, and what I what I picked up from the zeal of Paul, is he believed that so con- so firmly that he was just willing to walk into anything, and it never ruined his life until the end, where he was martyred, and that didn't really ruin his life either. If you read Second Timothy three, he's pretty stoked about it. Actually, <laughs> by the time it showed up, he's ready. So you know, there's something there. There's something in this spirit that is different than the spirit of the world, and it's it's got me kind of um, excited and yet and yet nervous too. I think we stand on a precipice. I think a lot of this is is COVID's impact on the church. So as Christians, we're feeling a different ripple than everybody else is feeling. Uh, everyone's feeling a ripple. It's about the clock breaking. And I don't think I'm the only one talking about this, but uh, and it certainly wasn't my idea, but Greenwich Mean Time no longer means what it used to for civilization. It just can't. And that is what we all are feeling in different levels as our different corners of the world now experience the fragmentation that is real, but which media and uh, a, a joint clock used to convince us um, wasn't real. And, and so we felt more unified than we do. Um, whether or not this will contain continue for another millennium, I have no idea. I kind of think it will, but that's, you know, that's just my guess. Um, but what we're doing, what we're finding then uh, with that fragmentation, um, uh, with that separation as Christians is that – let me say it this way. Everyone else is wondering why the clock doesn't work the way it used to, and they're kind of hoping it starts again. And Christians are like, well, yeah, that's kind of weird, and yet what's this word of God thing? Because it's like been here all along and it still seems about just as normal as it was, but everything else changed, but that's still the same. And actually, it's, it's wow, it's way deeper than I thought it was. <laughs> right? Like you're like, whoa, that's, uh, this is real stuff. And, and um, I, this is a pastor talking. I've been a pastor for, for almost 15 years. Yeah, I thought it was real stuff before COVID, but it's like more real stuff now. So I think it's a gift 
to to challenge us. Um, and again, I, take this for what it's worth, uh, because I, I'm not a prophet. I cannot divine the Lord. But I had this thought as a speculation the other day. It's like, you know, what if, for, and this was for me personally and my wife. It's like, what if, you know, I don't think we weren't Christians at all, you know, back in February. I'm pretty sure we were. But what if, what if some of the decisions we'd been making, some of the ways we'd let worldliness just be part of our lives, what if that over the next 40 years was going to make us not Christians? Not just us, but lots of people. What if God was going to have to destroy the world that was going to get so bad? What if he wanted to wake us up and he wanted to do it really mercifully? Hmm. Wow. That explains a lot of things. Now, that's just one way of looking at the past. And, and uh, you know, I'm always sort of in the business of, of trying to find an understanding of what happened that puts a possible God did this for awesome reasons on it. And then if I'm wrong, I'm okay with the better reason God actually did it. So, so take that kind of for what it was worth in that way. That's what I think we just got to do a lot more of in our congregations. Before COVID, our congregations are, oh no, oh no, the sky's falling, Christianity's collapsing, we're not going to survive. It should be, oh wow, civilization's collapsing. Hey congregation, let's build a library and get ready. Let's make sure we have some electrical engineering books in the library just in case. You know, that's that's the long-term view. And the long-term view is founded on the fact that he is risen. And that you know it, that we know it, that it's paid for, that it can't be taken from us. Yes, you can throw yourself to the fire, but you're not going to. That's not what the promises say. The promises say, gird up, stand firm, band together. You will, because he has. Uh, um, And again, this is just my own attempt to try to get myself to talk about it more, not only like this. I do this fine. I've always been good at the camera. You guys are far away. Uh, It's when I'm going by that person who in my own agenda for my life seems in the way. Whoever that might be at that moment, they're in my way or they're not really there for me to care about them. Like I'm moving on. What I want and the reason I'm reading this book is so that I don't and I stop and whoever they are, I remember that they're right in front of me. Whatever dream I think I'm doing for God, my family or myself, this human God put in front of me. So I should probably care. And, uh, Yes, this may be a little too uh, too legalistic for the end of it, but it, it is, when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, Philippians 3, I don't think he means, I'm an egomaniac who doesn't know what I'm talking about, ignore what I said, which is what some people would, would go with on that one. Um, I do think he really means that we're supposed to imitate him because he was trying to imitate Jesus and that a life that does that is what a Christian life is. But we can't imitate Jesus directly. He walked on water. He changed water into wine. Most of the stories about him, he's preaching to crowds of thousands, words that we don't understand sometimes. How can I imitate Jesus? Well, Paul says, at least to you men, imitate me. Um, and if you look at his letters, he, he gives you more than enough of that in, in his example. And his example is not about believing you have to do something to become a Christian. It's more like the Jobian reality, that you're on the other side of Job's catastrophe, the red pill. You know, you're on the ash heap. But you also know that there's nowhere to go but up, because ultimately, even the ash heap burning to the ground ends up with your resurrection. And then you can just walk those steps every day. And now all these conversations with people that you had to go past, well, your haste is in fact your sin. And you can be okay with that. You can be actually kind of glad about it. 
I'm glad to slow down and call myself hasty. It doesn't make me feel bad. I, I, it makes me slow down. It's great. You know, so enacting that on yourself, um, fighting back against modernism as you can, but particularly with the narrative that's bigger than modernism, which is that you know the clock is going to rise, it's going to fall, civilizations are going to come and go, marriage is going to be an eternal reality. People are going to be given and coming in marriage until Christ comes. But Christ has come and is returning. And until he returns, you stand as those set apart. You stand as gods of this age, really. Uh, those who can see with the eyes of the mind of Christ as delivered in scripture. Um, and uh, I, I, I believe we are ready to talk. That's what I believe. I believe Lutheran men are ready to talk and we just are going to. It's a matter of time. Um, so I hope I hope this evening has been uh, engendering for you guys in that regard, um, uh, kind of getting you going. I, I guess we could maybe do one more. It's like 8.55, push it to 9 o'clock and, uh, for my end and then call it a night. Yeah. Um, before we do the last question, do you want to say a little bit about what like your discord, your newsletter, the mad Christian sure. in general? Yeah. 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 So, um, for you guys, if you don't know any of my other stuff, um, I do a lot of different tool availability online, um, from the uh, mad Christian Saturday morning chill, which is my show on Saturday mornings from nine to 11 on youtube.com slash J, which if you're on YouTube, you're seeing this right now. Um, to the Mad Mondays newsletter, it goes out every Monday to your email inbox as data mining for Christians. That is trying to find some real news in the white noise, uh, trying to parse through some of those stickier issues. One of the ones I'm wrestling with right now or looking into right now and still not convinced I have all the right information on is abortifacient connections in development to the Pfizer uh, drug that will be coming out for uh, coronavirus, right? So um, I don't want to be the one that pronounces the final solution on things. I want to help the world find the first source information as much as possible. And uh, the Mad Christian Mondays is an attempt by a group of us to do that. Behind that, the Mad Christian Discord is an online Discord community. Think of it like Facebook for gamers and you control it yourself and keep it quiet and in a box or in a corner. You're welcome to join it. It's a really great community for networking with other Christians, other Lutherans, and particularly other men. Um, And that is uh, because inside of that Mad Christian Discord is the burgeoning Sons of Solomon, which is a men's movement throughout America to try to get men everywhere to pray nine psalms a day, carry a crucifix and a Bible and a prayer book with them wherever they go for a year and believe that it can't hurt. <laughs> it can't hurt. Um, so that's also going on inside the Mad Christian Discord. All of that can be found at RevFist.com in some way, shape, or form or, or gotten to through there. So um, I do a lot of stuff because I think uh, – I'll put it this way. My, uh, I'm 42 – I figure I'm at least halfway through life, give or take. So, you know, we'll just assume 38 years for, for planning purposes. So in the next 38 years, one of my goals, life goals, about five of them, is to build the biggest megaphone I can to shout he is risen it, risen into it as loud and as far and as often as I can. And so right now what that looks like is a lot of scattershot. There's a lot of things I'm throwing out there on the internet to try to make noise because there's so much white noise, but it's also part of a plan to build an online network, which again, the discord is happening. So if you want to be part of something that's going to be pretty impactful already is really, but pretty impactful, I'd say in, in one to three years in terms of networking men across the nation in real time to handle events like crazy political things that might have religious implications, at least so that Lutherans can know what are you doing over there? Um, the mad Christian discord is, is the, is the, the bone work of, 
a men's network to make that happen. Um, so glad to have you if you think that kind of thing is needed because it's only going to come about through volunteers. It is not a top-down organization. There's no money involved, and we'd like to keep it that way uh, on on the on the um, Sons of Solomon side. So, all right, yeah. So there's that there, and then we'll do one more question and uh, call night. Deacon, do you want to go ahead and close us out? Okay, I don't have a real question, but I I think uh, the strengths of this book address some of my weaknesses, and that is oral communication. And what I saw is that it's not being a lecturer or orator, it's listening and asking questions and asking questions and uh, let that be the guide. Um, respond to the questions and, and dig deeper. And that um, uh, made it seem a lot easier for me. That was a great help. I think the mechanics of communication, now I'm an engineer as Ryan, and I, I look at those sorts of things and um, I tend to listen to people and my logical mind starts working like Spock and Star Trek. Well, that's not logical. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. you know? so, so it was very helpful to me uh, from that aspect of it. Um, just listen, um, let the questions be your guide. Right, right. To who they are as a person, mm -hmm. right? And right. then who they right. are as a person mm -hmm. will reveal the wound into which you can, you can pour Christ. And, and largely, I mean, like it was said earlier by one of you, it's always the same answer, but until they've opened the wound and said, pour the answer in, it doesn't do you any good. You're like throwing it against the bandaid, right? You got to get them to open the wound up. And that's where the questions come in. So I got, I got to give the, the hat tip to that insight. That is Greg Kukul. Uh, and hit, uh, sorry, I say it always wrong. It's Greg Kokel, And he has a book called, um, oh, no, I'm going to lose it tactics. And so that insight about uh, the, the power of questions comes out of his book. You can also find Dale Carnegie does that in how win friends and uh, make friends influence people. I believe he deals with the questioning tactic as well, but not as much as, as Kokel does. Um, but I hope that again, I try to take all that and shove it together with the resurrection for your guys benefit. So I'm, I'm glad it's, it's helped you. If you're watching online, you don't have a copy of it. You can pick it up on amazon.com. Um, you can get a digital copy there too. And the digital copy is free when you sign up for Mad Mondays on RedFist.com. So you can get it for free. Um, so thank you, gentlemen. Um, I, I see I see. Uh, Justin is up there. Um, do you want to say anything to, to close us up there, Justin? Yeah, so thank you so much for your time um, and for everything that, that you do with your own network and all that. Um, you know, as, as far as the, the books and all that go, they, they've been enriching to my life. Um, and especially in getting me to study the word and go back to that more seriously and purposefully. Um, so I really want to say thank you for that. Yeah, you're um, welcome. And basically, I'll point to Pastor, if you could just close us with the benediction and we'll leave it there. I would be happy to do that. The Lord Almighty, bless us, defend us, and direct our days and our deeds in his peace. Amen.